0: Hello, team, and welcome to Bureaucracy. I'm your host, Emily Gross, and I am so excited today because I have Dean Baker with me, who is an economist extraordinaire, and we're going to be talking all about what is going on with the economy right now. Now, before we start, I do just want to give a call out that people are probably going to be shocked that I'm not talking about gun violence and what's going on in the country right now. However, that would be a very short podcast episode because it would be nothing's going to change unless politicians make decisions that prioritize the community and people and not having kids get shot in in school. So that's the reason why we're choosing the economy to talk about today, because there's actually things to learn and to know about, and gun violence is a really simple issue with just some dipshits who are not making the correct choices. So before we start, Dean, why don't you say hello and introduce yourself?
1: Hi, Emily. I'm Dean Baker, Senior Economist at the Center for Economic and Policy Research, and I'm now living in Southern Utah and enjoying the sun and dry weather here.
0: That is so nice. So I'm personally drinking so since we're talking about the economy, it's all kind of a shit show right now. I got a beer called Troublesome, which I thought was funny. I laughed when I bought it. It's from Off-Color Brewing in Chicago, I believe. And if you live in New York, I went to a place called ABC Beer Co. in East Village. I highly recommend you guys to go. Dean, what are you drinking?
1: I have Four Peaks Golden Lager in keeping with the region. And I believe, let's see, Four Peaks is in Tempe, Arizona. So not too far away. It's good regional beer.
0: Oh, keeping it local. Yeah. Love yeah. it. Let's talk about the economy. I <laughs> I try so hard to educate myself before I do any one of these episodes, and I truly just have no idea of what's going on. So all I know is inflation's high, things are not great, oil's really high. Why don't you just dive in and tell us what is going on?
1: Well, it's definitely a very, very mixed picture. I guess that's a real economist thing to say. Um, yeah. on, on the plus side, the labor market's great. I mean, we have 3.6% unemployment. That's pretty much as low as we've been since the late 60s. That's really extraordinary. Um, workers are quitting their jobs in near record numbers. Uh, that's really good news. I know you in the business press, they say, oh, we can't get workers. And you know, my view is, well, if you paid more, you would get workers. And Mm-hmm. What this means is that you have millions of workers working in low paying jobs, bad jobs, jobs with, with bad bosses, and they could just say, um, I'm leaving, you know, go across the street and get another job that they like better. And that's got to be a really great thing. We're seeing good wage growth, particularly at the bottom end of the labor market. So things like restaurant work, convenience store workers, wage growth has been really strong the last year and a half, two years. So these these are people that... Generally, have no bargaining power in the labor market, and currently they do, and that's a really good story. And this is for tens of millions of people, so that's a good part of the picture. The bad part is the inflation story. Um, we have high inflation. It is coming down. We got new data yesterday. The inflation rate, by one measure, the the consumer expenditure deflator. Now we're getting into details here, but it's an important measure. It was three tenths of a percent last month. That's higher than the Fed's target, but it's not a terribly high inflation rate. Three-tenths of a percent comes to a bit more than 3.5% a year, so it's not a terribly high inflation rate. Again, it's higher than what the Fed targets, higher than I think most people would like, but that's not a terribly high inflation rate. It had been higher, but it's coming down, and that's great news. Big problem is that there's a number of things that people buy regularly, most importantly gas, where the price has been rising a lot. Gas prices have gone through the roof. Um, Also, Things like beef prices, milk prices, those have risen a lot. And some of that, not all that, but some of that can be attributed to to the war in Ukraine. Um, Oil prices, oil are set in the world market. And, you know, I know there's a big thing among right wingers here, conservatives, blame Joe Biden. That's fine if they want to do that. But the reality is oil prices are set in the world market and Joe Biden really doesn't have much impact on the world market. Right. So so that's really a Russia-Ukraine story. Um, the story of uh, food prices, some of that's Ukraine, too, because we've seen uh, Ukraine's a big producer of wheat and other grains, and they've been largely shut off in their ability to export. So that's put upward pressure on prices. Other things like milk and beef, um, th- those are not as easily explained, but you know those have also gone up a lot. So what you could say is a lot of people are doing pretty well, particularly workers at the bottom. Other workers, uh, their wages may or may not have kept pace with inflation. And needless to say, you know, people who get gas, which is most people, they're not happy about that. So I'd say it's a mixed picture, but mostly very, very positive because again, the labor market, that's where most people get most of their income. And that looks really good right now.
0: So my question for you is though, so let's, the labor market is good, right? But however, a lot of people are having tough time finding jobs that pay higher wages. You know, I would say the labor market's pretty good for people with minimum wage jobs. There's readily a lot of those jobs available. However, with minimum wage still being so low and the federal minimum wage still being minuscule, is it fair to say that even though that there is such a low unemployment rate, that inflation is not necessarily having that bad of an effect? And I don't want to put words in your mouth, and I don't think I paraphrase that correctly, but I must feel like there's a difference there, you know?
1: Well... Uh, it, it's wrong to think that we're going to turn things around. Everyone's going to be in a good economy and happy about the situation. So we've had 40 years of wage stagnation where really right. workers at the, the middle and bottom haven't kept pace or barely kept pace, I should say, wow. with, with prices. So if you look at uh, the minimum wage today, it, it's, it's less adjusted for inflation than it was back in 1968. That's you know 54 years ago. And so minimum wage workers, actually, if you say, what can they buy with the minimum wage? It's actually less today than what they could have bought more than 50 years ago. And that's true. If you take, you know, the 20th percentile, 30th percentile, you go up the wage distribution. Um, People at the middle and bottom have not done well. When you get to the top, people have done well. People at the 90th percentile, 95th percentile, and of course, the top 1%, they've done very well. Um, But focusing on where most people live, the bottom, say, 70 or 80 percent, They've not done very well. Um, question is, are they improving now? And, you know, the answer, at least in my view, is certainly the bottom 20, 30 percent are, if we go higher, the 40, 50, 60th percentile, more or less treading water. And obviously, big differences. A lot depends where you live, what you buy. If you have to use a lot of gas, you know, if you travel a long way to work and you have to drive, you're not doing well. On the other hand, if you could take mass transit, you know, or, you know, you could walk to work, you know, you're not that bothered by the higher gas prices. So that's going to differ by where people live. But, Mm -hmm. but in terms of, you know, the overall story, again, I think for people at the the bottom, they're doing well, middle treading water, the high end, you know, harder to say. I mean, they've made a lot of money in the stock market the last five years, so I'm not going to worry that much about them.
0: So the federal minimum wage is $7.25, right? Which is abhorrent. And even the current call for $15 minimum wage is not necessarily tied to what wage should be right now. A lot of people say that raising the minimum wage, which is based on supply and demand and cost and whatever, the little graphs. Yes, I did take AP econ in high school. Don't want to brag. (laughs) You're ahead of me. You know, a lot of people say that raising the minimum wage will lower the amount of workers that are, it's going to increase unemployment rates. It's also going to increase prices. What are your comments on that?
1: You know, 15, 20 years ago, maybe 25 years ago, I might have been inclined to agree with that, at least in part. But there's been a lot of great research that's been done in this period, and also a lot of experiments. A lot of states, even cities, have raised their minimum wage far above the national minimum wage. The minimum wage in California is 15 an hour. Now I think you're at 15 in New York. The analysis has shown that this hasn't been associated with job loss. So it's not led to people losing their jobs. Now, has it had some impact on prices? I'm sure it's had some, and the research on that comes down in different places. But it'd be hard-pressed for me to believe it hasn't had some impact on raising prices. But to my view, that's kind of a small issue. You know, I don't think people should be working for 7, $7. twenty five an hour. You know, even 15 obviously, is not a terribly high wage these days. Um, you know, right. one of the things I did, it's a very simple exercise. I said, suppose the minimum wage had risen in step with productivity, and people look at me like, that's kind of far out. Well, the minimum wage did in step with productivity from when it was created in 38 until 1968 so for three decades it rose in step with productivity and we had three and a half percent unemployment in 1968 so it didn't create mass unemployment so supposed to continue to rise in step with productivity it'd be about 22 dollars an hour today um so you know i i think we could have higher minimum wage just to be clear i don't think we should raise the minimum wage to 22 dollars an hour today i mean that would that's something you would have to do over time probably have to make a lot of right. change. If you do it
0: all at once, it'd be like a shock effect. However, mm-hmm. it could be a great thing to go for. <laughs>
1: it's it's worth it's keeping it's worth keeping in people's minds because it, you know I wrote on this just short blog posts, but you know, imagine a world where the lowest paid worker, if they worked full time, was getting $44,000 a year. And if you had two earner couple, they'd be getting $88,000 a year, your lowest paid worker. That would be a very, very different country. Um, so yeah. I think it's worth thinking about that. But no, I, I can't say, oh, it'd be a good idea to get to $22 an hour You know, this year, next year, or even five years. You'd have to do a lot of other things to make that possible. But we had an economy back in the 60s where we were on that path. So I think it is worth holding that out as a benchmark. That we can have an economy where even the people working the lowest paid jobs, working as custodians, working in restaurants, uh, that they could have decent standards of living. that should be And they
0: do so much, by the way. So just putting that out
1: there. Yeah, well, I mean, that was one of the things that was very dramatic, you know, during the peak of the COVID that, you know, these were people who were going to work every day. You know, I was in a situation, I work at home. I don't have to be exposed to it. But these were people that... You know, they had to go out and deal with customers and, you know, take the risk of getting COVID themselves, giving it to family members, many of whom might have had health issues. You know, I think it's reasonable to say everyone should be able to live, have a decent standard of living, and we should have an economy that's oriented around that idea. And we can do that. It's not simple. We can't do it overnight, but that really should be how we think about the economy.
0: You hear that, Republicans? You hear it? (laughs) A little louder for you? So a lot of talk about inflation right now. It's a lot being talked about on like war and then coming out of the pandemic and whatnot. Can you kind of give an oversight on why prices are rising so high just on everyday goods?
1: Yeah, it's a great question and not a simple answer. So one of the things (laughs) we could say... Is clearly the reopening from the pandemic was a big part of that story. And part of the reason why we could say that is it's happened everywhere. So we have high inflation here, but we can look to the European Union, we can look to the UK. It's almost the same. they a little it's a little lower inflation. But you know, what I always say is no one here would be happy if we had the inflation rate in the the European Union or the, the UK. Maybe it's right. a half percentage point lower. It's it's basically the same story. So what happened here, we had large chunks of the world economy shut down through 220 and really much 221. And then suddenly we get this big surge in demand, economies are coming back online. And you have a lot of sectors that they weren't able to meet that demand. And Mm -hmm. we saw that very clearly with the stories about all the goods piling up offshore in California at the ports that they weren't prepared to deal with the flood of imports, the computer chip, chip shortage, that was a
0: right. story
1: where in addition to, to reopening, we also had a, a fire at a ma- major chip factory in, in Japan that shut down. So we had a variety of factors that made it more difficult to reopen from the pandemic. And again, important to keep in mind, it's not over, particularly in China, where they have their, their pursuing zero COVID policy. And they've yeah,
0: they just had another big wave too.
1: Yeah. So, so they've shut down large segments of their economy. Uh, Shanghai, I think they are now finally reopening, but Shanghai is a huge, huge city, more than 20 million people. It was largely shut down since April. So these have all been factors limiting our ability to get a wide range of goods, which has led to shortages and big increases in their prices. It seems that's coming to an end. It's not ending overnight or anything, but we see a lot of items that had been in short supply. I've been using televisions as my sort of canary in the coal mine. Uh, Television prices uh, soared in 221, so they went up about 10% between March and August of 221. Since then, they've been falling, and they're almost back to where their their level was back in March of 220. So we're seeing, we're getting through this, but it's not all at once, it's not even. So with some items, you know, we're getting prices back to pretty much where we might think they should be. Other items, clearly, it's going to take longer.
0: So I guess at the beginning, you know, it was so evidently a lot of it was caused caused by COVID and supply and demand and just everything being shut down, right? However, there's now a lot of talk about how giant corporations are taking advantage of this concept of supply and demand, you know, and not actually producing the amount that they have capable. What's your opinion on that? And is there any factuality to that claim?
1: Yeah, I'm somewhat agnostic simply because I haven't looked at the data closely enough. There was a paper from the Boston Fed which did find that the concentration, increased concentration in a large number of industries has been a factor. I'm not adverse to that. I don't think it's the main cause in any case, but I think that could be a factor. My, My hesitance is that the concentration didn't just happen. So, it's not suddenly in to in 221 2020, that the beef industry became concentrated, that the oil industry, but you know they, this has been going on for decades. So the question right. is, why is it now? So the counter story would be, well, they're taking advantage that they have more market power than they had before the pandemic, and they're taking advantage of that to push up prices more than if, let's say, we still had a large number of beef producers. I don't know the exact figure, but something like. 80% of the market's controlled by four producers. So it's a heavily concentrated industry. Yeah, it's um, crazy. So, so I think it's plausible that that's a factor. I don't think it's the main factor. Um, and I think very few people would argue it's the main factor. So, right. so you know, and again, one of the issues and it's it, it's been interesting. There's been some debate on this. I think we should be taking measures to, to rebuild our antitrust policy. I and mean, you've know, basically thrown the antitrust policy in yes. the toilet for, for decades. And <laughs> yeah, I mean there's clearly you know again it's not my main area, but I do follow this stuff. You know, you have yes. things like, you know, the the telecommunications industry where what Verizon ATT and Sprint and... um, Yes,
0: and even what just happened with all uh, this baby formula stuff, that's because there is like two manufacturers creating baby formula...
1: Yeah. So, so we've been kind of asleep on this. I mean, I remember some years ago, uh, there was uh, like five years ago, there was a merger of, um, I'm trying to get my airlines straight. It was uni- not United, USAir and American Airlines. And people were asking me what I thought of it. And I, I wasn't fond of it, but I just said, well, after you allowed Continental to merge with United, you allowed Delta to merge with Northwest, I don't know what you could really say. You know, So, if you, you're being consistent, and I, it's not that I care for USA again, no. but it's just like you've let everything else through. How are you going to say no to this one? But it really would be a good idea to bring back antitrust policy. And I think we've been horribly yeah. negligent. Food
0: for thought.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and yeah. Um, so if this if this is the spark for that, I think that would be a good outcome. And the Biden administration, yeah, has silver lining, has has appointed some people who are serious about antitrust, and hopefully we'll see some headway there.
0: I don't know. I freaking hope so. However, based on the way government's looking right now, chances are it's going to get stuck in a stalemate. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, one one advantage with antitrust policies that is largely at the executive level now. Everything will go to court. So if, you know, if the Biden administration people say, hey, we want to do something about the concentration in telecommunications, clearly they're, they're going to have to go to court to do that. Um, So, well, that will depend on how judges rule. They'll at least make the actions, whereas under, well, certainly under the Bush and Trump administration, but I have to say, even under the Obama administration, antitrust was, you know, very much on the back burner.
0: Which should not be, because now I pay more for my oat milk, and that's just a horrendous thing for everyone. So... So I've also been seeing the Federal Reserve just raised interest rates, and I read and I Googled that apparently that's supposed to help with inflation. Is that going to help? What does that mean? It's Where is that going?
1: Yeah, it's a really good, really important question. So basically, the standard story of the Fed raising interest rates is they're trying to slow the economy, and we should be clear what's going on here. You could argue the economy is growing too fast through 221. It was in a sense it couldn't sustain that rate of growth without serious inflation. So trying to slow the economy makes sense. On the other hand, the ordinary mechanism through which the Fed is fighting inflation is they're throwing people out of work. So the classic story, people credit Paul Volcker and whether you want to give him credit or blame, he did do this. He pushed interest rates through the roof in the early 1980s, 79 80s and he gave us a really bad recession. We had a horrible recession, 81, 82, the unemployment rate got to almost 11% and that forced workers to take big pay cuts. And that got inflation down. So people talk about this like, oh, well, let's, let's have the Fed get inflation down. Well, that way of getting inflation down, I don't think would actually sound very good to most people. I think most people don't understand because it's usually not talked about very clearly in the media, but that is the mechanism. Now, the other side, you know, because I'm, I'm sympathetic to what they've done to date. They've raised interest rates. They haven't raised them that much. The big question will be how much they raise them in the future. But the effect that their raises to date have had have been largely on the housing market. So we have the interest rate they control, the overnight money rate. That's still very low. It's less than 1%. That's still very low by any measure. Oh, wow. Um, it, that's really low. Yeah, it had been zero. But, you know, so they've raised it, but it's still very low. But it's had a huge impact on the housing market because the 30 year mortgage rate, which had been around 3% last summer, is now about 5.3%. So if you're looking to buy a mm-hmm. home and instead of paying 3% interest, you're paying 5.3%, it's a huge difference. Right.
0: That's a massive difference.
1: Yeah. So that has slowed the housing market. So we have some data on that. I mean, much of their data on the housing market lags, but we have things like mortgage applications, purchase mortgage applications. That's down double digit numbers compared to last year. And then you have anecdotal evidence and you never know what to make of anecdotal evidence because everyone's got a story. <laughs> but anyhow, um, you have stories of houses, uh, price price cuts, price reductions, um, houses sitting on the market. That wasn't happening two months ago. And I think that's mostly a positive story because the house, the the housing market on the one hand, most people, two thirds are homeowners, a little less than that, but people looking to buy a home, you know, it's an offset, you'll pay higher interest rate, but you'll get a lower house price. So that, you know, that mixed bag. But the other part of the story is that if you reduce the number of people buying homes, you actually are going to free up some housing, and this is indirect, but I think they'll have an effect in lowering rents because what happens? Some of the people buying homes, I realize a lot of cases, you know, someone moves from an apartment to a home. If it's a two-bedroom apartment, two-bedroom home, that's no change, but if it's a one-bedroom apartment to a three-bedroom house, they're taking up more space, and that if they don't do that, if they stay in the one-bedroom apartment, there's more room for other people. And probably the biggest part of that story is where if people are looking to buy a second home, and you have a lot of people in that situation, obviously relatively affluent people, but if the higher mortgage rates keep them from doing that, then you'll have more housing available. And again, that puts some downward pressure on rents. So I think this is what we've seen to date is a good thing from the Fed. If they push it too far, if they try to be like Paul Volcker, and unfortunately Jay Powell, the current chair, has been singing the praises of Paul Volker. Oh no. Um oh God. That, then it's cause for concern. And right. you know, so some increases in interest rates I think were reasonable. It was you couldn't justify, or at least I couldn't justify having a zero percent interest rate when, when the unemployment rate's three point six percent, inflation rate is right. you know, seven percent. So some rise in interest rates I think made sense. If he keeps pushing it and they do a Volker, I don't think they'll be a good story.
0: I mean, and you're talking about housing and lowering rent price. I live in Manhattan and in Lower East Side. Would love to see that happen. So
1: yeah, well, I, you, know. you know there there's a lot. I just wrote a short blog post where, you know one of the things I would love to see, and I don't know what uh, you know, Mayor Adams has been going the opposite direction. But yeah, he's kind of, you should be looking yeah. to try to convert a lot of the vacant office space to residential because yeah. it, it's kind of nuts to have this office space sitting empty. When well, I'm saying he's been going the other direction, he's been yelling at companies saying, oh, you should get everyone back in the office. And to my view... I mean, if people could re- work remotely, why make them come to the office? I mean, I understand he wants to do that because their business is to depend on the commuting population, but, you know, it'd be yeah, much. Well,
0: he has a lot of opinions and a lot of actions that I think are categorized under the the stupid umbrella. So
1: <laughs> Yeah, I <laughs> we'll mean, I, I don't know how much thought he's given to it. You know, the economy's different post-COVID, more people are going to work remotely and That's mostly a good thing. I mean, I'm not happy to see these businesses go under, but the reality is they're trying to serve a market that isn't there.
0: All right. So we've talked about inflation. We've talked about federal interest rates. We talked about supply chain. And this is another thing that has also been in the news recently that I don't know if it's tied in or not, but the crypto crash of what is currently occurring, of how like billions of dollars have just kind of evaporated into thin air. This has affected me. My four dollars invested in crypto went down to like forty cents in crypto. So, it, <laughs> what happened?
1: You know, it's it's funny. I think I'm probably among uh, in the mainstream of economists on this and that. I, I don't see the point of crypto. So, you know, you have this. Oh, wow, this is really cool. Point. It's a digital currency and. You know, Paul Krugman's been writing, and I probably say I'd agree with him ninety-nine percent of the way on crypto. I mean, I just like, what's the point? You know, they're going, Oh, we could do this really cool digital currency. You know, okay, but why? You know. <laughs> What is it you could do with crypto that you can't do with a credit card, with any forms, you know, PayPal and all these other things that are already out there and you don't have to speculate in a currency. And I've never heard a good answer to that. I mean, one thing I do know, it's, you know, and people made this obvious point, if you want to do illegal transactions, if I'm doing drug deals, you know, arms sales, you know, you
0: can't track it. Yeah.
1: So, so that's a clear, you know, I don't know how big the market is for that, hopefully not all that big, but in any case... You know, it comes down to okay, so what's the proper price for crypto? It could go down. I don't know. We could, don't know. You know, I just I don't really see any value any inherent value in it. We've had a similar thing, non fungible tokens, which you know
0: Oh NFTs yeah. wild.
1: Yeah, you know, wild time. Yeah, and you just go over. Okay. They're like
0: bored ape thing, you know, and they are sell for like millions of dollars. And you're like, What happened here?
1: Yeah, it's just like, what, what's, what? what is the point of this? You know, if I want a picture, I want yeah. the picture and that's fine. It's a digital picture. I can get good digital picture. Why would I pay, you know, millions of dollars for it? I just, you know, I, I don't see the logic. So I put crypto and NFTs in the same bag that you could get a situation where people are prepared to pay millions, but there's no obvious reason they would be. So I don't know what people are going to decide next week, next month, next year in terms of what the price of Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies will be.
0: Don't you feel like that's kind of... Listen, you're an economist. I'm just a raging Gen Z liberal. So there's differences. However, (laughs) but... Doesn't that almost feel like that is kind of just like the whole monetary system of which we've built and like the stock market where it's all kind of just like, we don't know, we're kind of just throwing inherent value at stuff and seeing what sticks?
1: It does. And it's not new, though. I mean, this, you know, we've had, you know, I assume you heard about the tulip uh, bubble in Holland in the 16th century yes. where tulips just became incredibly valuable and it just disappeared. You know, so people are willing to pay crazy right. prices for tulips. And then suddenly they said, oh, they're nice flowers, but, you know, I'm not going to pay millions of...
0: Yeah, with, they're like, uh, why are we doing this?
1: Yeah. And and that's happened again and again and again. And, you know, in my my lifetime as an economist, the two big, you know, explosions like that. One was the stock bubble in, in the 1990s. Uh, it's concentrated in the mm-hmm. tech sector. At the end of the 90s, you had internet companies, because that's where you saw the biggest run-ups, internet companies the startups they didn't even know how they could make a profit I remember the Wall Street Journal featured this one company that in their their perspective they said we don't know how we'll make a profit they were honest about it they said we don't know how we'll make a profit and they still raised hundreds of millions of dollars you know so so in principle crazy. you know the value of stock is supposed to be related to the profits that companies are making you know, I, I could understand that, you know, you have a startup, you know, Amazon, they had, you know, a model. Originally, they started I don't know when they first started making money, they lost money for years, you know, but they right. they had a model, they had an idea and it turned out, it, yeah, it did become profitable. But, you know, when you, you don't even know how you could become profitable, that seems hard. But, you know, you saw these prices go through the roof, and then they eventually crashed. And it was a similar story with, the housing bubble and the knots that you know people are building homes and it really was crazy i lived in dc at the time which was not the worst area for the bubble but we saw a big run-up in prices mm-hmm. and you'd have developments in the exurbs so price increases i lived in the city at the time and you know my condo went through the roof i was happy because i sold it but the the biggest increase was in the exurbs and they were just building like crazy and you'd have developments where people would rush down to buy a contract for a house it wasn't built yet in many cases it wasn't even started And oftentimes they would sell it and resell it. Some of these houses were sold two or three times before they were finished. You know, so it was a similar sort of story. And the price crashed. And in some of those excerpts, the price fell by more than 50%. I remember I was uh, leafleting for Obama on Election Day in 2008. And I was in one of these developments and everything was empty. You know, there were maybe one third of the the houses were occupied. So you get these manias where... You know, people just are willing to pay crazy prices and they're not thinking about, oh, does this really make sense? And I'd say crypto, NFT, that's like that. You know, people have asked me, is the stock market a bubble? I'd say it's high, it could mm-hmm. fall, it has fallen, it could fall more, sure. It's not a bubble, it's not that it, the prices make no sense. And, you know, that's, yeah. that's when I really start worrying.
0: See, in my mind, I just would be happy if everyone lived just like still in like a trade and barter system, so.
1: <laughs> that does eliminate but, the possibility of a bubble.
0: Right, you know, like I'll take four apples for like, a goat. Who knows? Who knows? <laughs> that would be an unfair trade, but in my mind, it would be good for me. <laughs> um, so I think this brings me to like the big question. Are we headed towards like, another recession?
1: I don't think so. And it's kind of funny because I'm usually not the big optimist. Um, And, uh, you know, I'm inclined to think the economy is pretty good now and likely to stay that way. And again, I'm focused on the labor market, but obviously inflation, I recognize that being a huge factor. I see a lot of items. I was giving the story television sets. I think we'll see that in a lot of cases where prices of items, you know, apparel, you know, which there's no reason for apparel prices suddenly to shoot up. They shot up in 2021. I think they'll actually come back down. They're not only going to not rise; they'll actually come back down. I think that'll be true for a lot of items. And then on top of that, and this is total speculation, but I'm assuming at some point the war in Ukraine will end. And I'll be clear what I mean by ending. Hopefully, I just mean a ceasefire. I mean, be wonderful if you know we had a peace deal whatever form it took, but, you know, it a piece Or deal. just
0: like Putin had a wave of consciousness and wasn't a dipshit.
1: Yeah. yeah. You know, so Putin goes, you're right. I shouldn't <laughs> have invaded Ukraine. I mean, I'm not going to bet on that one, but, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> you realize, okay, I'm spending a lot of money getting people killed. Not that he that necessarily bothers him, but I'm sure it's not popular in Russia. So why don't we just agree we're going to stop where it is, you know, and, you know, we'll work out, you know, what happens with Crimea, we'll work these things out. But the point is, you have a ceasefire. I think if that were to happen, one, oil prices would fall a lot. Maybe they won't get back to where they were in 2019, but they would fall a lot. It means lower gas prices. I assume that if there's a ceasefire, there'd be an agreement that Ukraine could, again, export wheat, that they could, you know, have access to, to you know, the ports on the Black Sea I mean, I would expect that'd be part of a ceasefire. So if you had that world where on the one hand, most of the supply chain issues were resolved, that means China's again back online. There's some evidence they're moving in that direction. Again, I'm no expert on China's politics, but their prime minister, the number two person, uh, Li, has been saying things like, we have to think about the economy. And so he seems to be diverging from the zero COVID policy. So whether that's with Xi's permission or not, I have no idea. But he's obviously a tremendously sure. important person in China. So, right. so whether this is sort of a rebellion against Xi or whether this is Z testing the waters, I can't answer. But the point is, they seem to to be coming to the view that, OK, this policy was too extreme. So long and short, I'm expecting we'll see the supply chain issues resolved. Hopefully there'll be, you know, some somewhat resolution with the war in Ukraine, at least the ceasefire. And in that story, I we're looking at a very strong labor market and, you know, I think a very, very good economic picture. The Congressional Budget Office, which, you know, I've often criticized, I'm sure on many other occasions to criticize criticized them, <laughs> but they came out with their new projections just a couple of days ago. They're incredibly strong. So they showed the economy Amazing. having 3.7 percent unemployment this year, 3.6 percent next year, and then in 2024, 3.8 percent. These are incredible. We, we haven't had three years of that low unemployment maybe ever, but at least since World War II. So that's a really strong picture. And they had the inflation rate getting back down to, at least where I would consider, it, very acceptable levels, around a little over 2%, which, you know, everyone says the Fed's target's 2%, but, you know, 2.3, 2.4, who cares? So Somewhere in the realm. Yeah, yeah. So I'm pretty optimistic. <laughs> and, you know, I just see much more good in the economy than bad. So, uh, you know, again, I know... Everyone's yelling about gas prices. I I discuss this with reporters and they say, well, you can't tell people gas prices are low. I go, no, I can't. They see what they pay for gas, but that is only part of a much larger picture. And if everything's gas prices, okay, well, that's a big deal to people, but... Everything is in gas prices.
0: So the other question I have about gas prices, which is just going to go back to a little bit, there's also been rumors that there actually is not really a gas and oil shortage, that they do have massive reserves. All these companies have massive and massive reserves of oil and gas. And they're once again, just playing into this supply chain issue, right? Yeah. What's your thoughts on that? And if you think that's happening?
1: I think most of the story, well, there are two things I would say going on here. One is that we've had this reopening. Demand has increased more rapidly than production. Uh, People have looked at U.S. productions that were not back to where we were in 2019. And, you know, there have been some secret calls. Industry people are saying, well, we're showing discipline. We're not going out and drilling like crazy. And I I don't see any conspiracies there because the idea is, you know, they're, they see- I
0: love oil. a good conspiracy theory. Well, <laughs> oh, bummer.
1: <laughs> I tend to resist them. They're not always wrong, but but they see oil prices at 100, 110 a barrel, but they don't expect them to stay at 110 a barrel. So mm-hmm. it's not surprising that they're not going to rush out and drill oil that might be profitable at 110 a barrel if they expect oil prices to fall back to 70 a barrel. And I actually think that's a very reasonable expectation. I mean, who knows if that'll be true or not, but I, you know, if you ask me where oil will be, two years from now, I'd say probably closer to 70 a barrel than 110 a barrel. They got burned on this back in 2014. So you had all this drilling, you know, that was sort of this big fracking boom to 12, 13, where they were mm-hmm. fracking everywhere. And the price of oil collapsed from 100, I think it got as low as 40. And a lot of those companies went bankrupt. Again, I don't have any sympathy for them. They're in business, they're big boys and girls, and they understand that's the way markets work. But
0: and they're also kind of fucking the environment over. So. Yes.
1: And in that sense, we should want <laughs> high gas prices. But mm-hmm. but in any case, um, it's not surprising to me. They don't rush out and start drilling everywhere. So so we have seen an increase in drilling, but surely not as rapidly as it could be. But I think that's based on kind of the very reasonable expectation. Oil prices aren't going to stay at 100, 110 a barrel. So I don't see some grand conspiracy there. Now, there is another side to that. Why are oil prices so high? There's always a large speculative element in these markets. You know, people are betting that oil prices will be high. And this yeah. is what, what I was saying. If Ukraine, if there, there was a ceasefire in Ukraine, I think the bets would go the other way. So people are, are betting, oh, is a large amount of oil from Russia and maybe from Ukraine, other countries, is that going to go off world markets because of the war in Ukraine? But if there were a ceasefire and, you know, seems stable, at least, again, I don't expect the sanctions will, sanctions will probably be left in place on Russia, but, you know, that would sort of define, okay, here's how much oil is being removed from world markets, and for better or worse, I don't think it's going to be that much, because the oil that Russia had been selling to the U.S., had been selling to the EU. that's largely going to China and India, so it's not being removed from world markets, it's shuffling around. Interesting. Um, but... Anyhow, I think the situation would be much more settled if you had a peace agreement in Ukraine, and that would remove much of the speculative element that's driven, helped to drive
0: up oil prices, I should say. See, and my parents always told me growing up to never assume because you make an ass out of you and me. So what is everyone doing with this speculativeness? You know?
1: (laughs) Well, there's a lot of money to be made if you guess right. I mean, that's, it's, you know, it's, if you look at the amount of trading in the oil market, really any of the markets, it dwarfs the amount of sort of actual productive, I'm trying to think of the right word for it. I mean, there's so much oil that, you know, producers put on the market and sell. And that's to, to people actually use it, I should say. And that's, I doubt even one-tenth of the amount of trading. It might not even be 1%. I haven't looked at the numbers lately, but it's, it's a tiny fraction of the trading. And you see that with everything, you know, that, uh, you know, with wheat, with other commodities and of course with stock. I mean, the stocks flip back and forth all the time. And, you know, people sort of the classic story people tell about the stock market. Oh, that's how companies raise money for investment. No, that's really not true at all. Because most companies, when they first go public, you know, uh, you know, Facebook or Twitter, whatever it might be, when they go public, that's when they're cashing out. They rarely they rarely go public to raise money for investment. When Facebook went public, it was because Mark Zuckerberg wanted to get some money out, you know. And so, so it's really very rare. It was true in the late nineties in the stock bubble, but it's very rare that companies are going to the stock market to raise money for investment. For the most part, it's just shuffling assets.
0: Hmm. Any other comments you would like to say on the economy, on what's going on? Anything?
1: Well, I just encourage people to sit back. You know, it's easy to find negatives. And, you know, I know I've often been called to do, you know, I had a friend who said I could find the cloud in every silver lining. But, but oh, you know. We, we, <laughs>
0: what a nice thing to say about a friend.
1: <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it's sit back and try and look at things. And we can't turn things around overnight. So, you know, I'm not a big Biden. He wasn't my pick for the nomination or anything. So I'm not like a big Biden promoter. But I think the idea that can we say things are going in the right direction? Can we do things to make them move in that direction faster? That's how we have to think about things. So we could all be upset that things aren't better today, that they aren't turning around more quickly. But you know, look at how things are better than they had been and again, make improvements. We we can and will do much better. But you know, I think we have to keep our eyes on the ball and not be unrealistic. Like, no, I, I mean, I'd love to see Medicare for all, for example. I'd love to see that, but we're yeah. not going to have that tomorrow. We're not going to have that next year. We can make inroads. You know, I mean, one of the things I proposed lower the Medicare age to 64 and I have people laugh at me and I go, well, we've had Medicare for, makes a difference. for for 55 years and we haven't lowered it at all. So, you know, Knock it down one year, and then maybe a year or two later, we can knock it down another year two years. You know, right. makes figure out how to make progress, and you know, we we can move forward.
0: From what I understand, from what you've been saying, things are definitely not great, but they're not as bad as the media might be portraying it as.
1: Yeah, exactly. And you know, <laughs> okay. saying gas prices are high, the economy is a disaster. No, I'm sorry, that's nuts. We, we could be unhappy, gas <laughs> prices are high, but that does not make the economy a disaster. Gotcha.
0: Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's good to get your opinion and your thoughts on it. And I mean, because it's easy to look at all the just like big headlines. And you're like, Oh, my God, we're fucked. (laughs) But It is a little nice to hear like, No, there is some goods happening. There is things are being approached in the right way. And really, a lot of this just comes down to Putin needs to stop being a douchebag. Um, That's not a lot of it, but I would say like a fair amount, you know.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, if we can get a ceasefire there, it would mean a lot. Uh,
0: Anyways, Gene, it has been great to have you. Thank you so much. I appreciate you giving the lowdown, helping just to kind of provide some clarity on what's going on in the economy. Thanks,
1: Emily. It's been a lot of fun.
0: Thanks. All right. This has been a great episode of Bureaucracy, and I will see you next week.